You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. I'm in studio today with Megan Fitzpatrick, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in War Studies at the Royal Military College, or RMC. Welcome to the studio today. Thanks so much for the invitation. We're so happy to have you here. Megan uh, recently uh, published a book in 2017 with uh, University of British Columbia Press, Invisible Scars, Mental Trauma and the Korean War. And I understand it has recently gone to paperback. Yes, it has gone to paperback in about April. So I'm glad that it's available to more people now. Excellent. So I'm looking forward to talking more about your book and and the recent launch party uh, that happened at Novel Idea downtown. Yeah, it was great. It was a full audience at the Novel Idea. Some really great questions that evening. Fantastic. Well, I hope I have some great <laughs> questions for you today. And, uh, and But before we get into talking about the book itself, um, I wonder if you can tell us about your research and what you're doing now at the Royal Military College as the postdoctoral fellow, the Shirk postdoctoral fellow, and your research on the history of the Canadian military's research on psychological resilience and adaptability. <laughs> mouthful. Wow, it is a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. What is this? And can we condense this down for a wide community audience? Well, okay, I'll try. Well, psychological resilience has become something of a buzzword in the Canadian military and really in the military world in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, ways to boost resilience, to make people uh, better able to cope with the stresses of being in high-stress environments, so military deployment. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes I've found that people refer to this as if it's new research and that nobody's dealt with the subject matter before and as any good historian I like to be a complete spoil sport (laughs) and to remind people that this stuff is rarely new and the research really focuses on early Canadian work that was done in the 1950s and the 1960s that's very much about resilience and adaptability Mm -hmm. so things like screening personnel when they come into the military or looking at their capacity to adapt in extreme environments like the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And on the more controversial end of the scale, I'm looking at things like sensory deprivation and perceptual deprivation research. Mm-hmm. So uh, brainwashing, for want of a better term. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. So what are the uh, practical applications that this research might lead to in terms of national defense, for right. example? Well, I think, first of all, it reminds people that these ideas, the the, the uh, material is already there for them to talk harvest some of the research results that were that came out of the 50s and the 1960s. And that actually seems incredibly relevant right now because the other day I was looking on Twitter and National Defense had tweeted mm-hmm. uh, asking for people for research ideas about how to predict resilience when in fact they've done some of this research many decades before and could benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And now from the academic perspective, what sure. contributions will this research be making? 
Well, I think what it, it what it opens up is our understanding of human endurance and psychology, motivation and learning within a military context, but also in a wider context of psychology and the history of the psychological profession. I think we've dealt with the history of the civilian side of the profession, but oftentimes we don't look at the military applications and defense applications, oftentimes because the records themselves were quite sensitive and confidential up to this point. Okay. Now, I'm kind of interested to know what led you into this path of research, what drives and motivates it. Right. Well, initially, I was looking at, I was just a history major in general, and I was taking a whole bunch of different courses, and I was interested in looking at war in specifics Mm -hmm. and the experience of war. But I was a little bit bored by just looking at it from the tanks and guns perspective, you know, which side has this number of weapons, etc. And I wanted uh, a more human appreciation of it. And I read an article at the time when I was an undergrad that was on something called lack of moral fiber, which struck me as a very weird term. Mm -hmm. And it was used to describe people in the Second World War who would refuse to fly, or uh, they were in the Royal Air Force, uh, who would refuse to fly without a physical reason for refusing. And it struck me as an incredibly unique way to look at war, a very human way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And that just led down the rabbit hole of looking at things like shell shock and battle exhaustion, all those kind of terms. Mm-hmm. So in the discipline of war studies or history, particularly military or war right. history, how has the discipline invol- uh, evolved in terms of uh, the research, but as well as the pedagogy? Hmm. Uh, I think the research has evolved in the sense that over the last decade or two, it's become much more multidisciplinary Mm -hmm. and multinational. So people used to just focus on the history of one particular nation. But now that we have enough information and enough of those national histories, we can start to link up the dots between them. Mm -hmm. And people are willing to tackle interdisciplinary subjects. Now, obviously, this deals with history of psychology and medicine, Oftentimes, I think people felt uncomfortable dabbling in that before, mm-hmm. uh, but that seems to be the the trend in vogue right now is to go for an interdisciplinary approach. I think it gives a more full appreciation of the subject matter. Okay. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your book, Invisible Scars, Mental Trauma, and the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Again, University of British Columbia Press mm-hmm. 2017. Yes. Recently uh, came out in paperback. Yes, go out and buy it. Now, uh, could you tell us about the thrust of the book? What are you trying to argue in this book? Right. Well, first of all, the reason I focused on the Korean War is really nobody's done it before. So mm-hmm. there was my obvious in. Uh, But the book really, what it looks at is it looks at treatment of Commonwealth soldiers both in Korea and then what happened to veterans when they came home. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that Commonwealth in general was very good at treating soldiers in the short term and getting them back to duty. Mm -hmm. But those long-term care compensation systems, support systems, weren't in place. So where the failure came was when they went home. Mm. Okay. And now... Tell us about the research process. Were you in right. Korea? No. Uh, for this purpose, as I was looking at the Commonwealth Division. Okay. So the Commonwealth Division was the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And the medical services were provided by the UK and Canada. Mm-hmm. So I was mainly looking at British as well as Canadian government records. 
Uh, at the time when I was doing the PhD, I was living over in the UK doing this. So I spent most of my time at the archives in Kew. And then I would make periodic trips to Canada to be able to do the rest of the work in Ottawa. All right, at the Library and Archives. Yes, indeed. So with regard to Canadian troop deployment in the Korean War, which is something that I think a lot of us aren't even aware of. True. um, How many people went? What was the extent as well as the impact of Canadian troop deployment? What did that look like uh, for the soldiers and their families? Well, it's actually far more extensive than I think people are aware of. Oftentimes, Korea, I think uh, people think of it as an American conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, there were 145,000 Commonwealth troops sent to Korea, of which about 26,000 were Canadians. Mm -hmm. So it's actually one of the largest deployments of Commonwealth manpower after the First and Second World War. Wow. So it's quite significant. Yeah. And their experience was pretty brutal over the course of three years that they were in theater off and on uh, together. 1950 to 53. 1950 through 53. Mm -hmm. Because they're extreme conditions. So the weather is extreme. It can go down to minus 30 in the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's very little shelter for them. They're living in trenches most of the time along the front lines. Mm -hmm. In the summer, it's extremely hot. There are snakes, insects, etc. Highly unpleasant. And the, most of the battles happen at night mm-hmm. with announced by a bugle call. And then all of a sudden there'll be a mass of rush towards the trenches and it will be fighting through the night for survival. Uh, oftentimes I think people see the Korean War as small scale actions and it is that. But they're brutal small scale mm-hmm. actions and very, very violent. So how is the uh, how is the Korean War comparatively violent, say, compared to the First or Second World War, let alone uh, conflicts that have followed. Right. Well, Korea, probably if you were trying to compare it to one of the world wars, would be more comparable with the First World War. Okay. How so? The first few months of the war are highly mobile, but after a while, it settles down into a war of attrition. Ah. So that's why it becomes a, a war of patrols, a war of trenches, etc. So it very much becomes more comparable to the First World War at that point. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of actual movement no. over broad spaces. No, it's a limited war, and it's fought over for the last two years of the war over political objectives and trying to get a bargaining place at the table. So mm-hmm. it's about that. It's about political ends rather than trying to, to beat the enemy. Okay. And now what about uh, the violence itself? What what kinds of violence were uh, troops having to engage in or well, it experience? Ma- it was mainly ground warfare. So we're talking about infantry troops are mainly involved. Mm-hmm. And it would be small-scale actions again. It would be close hand-to-hand combat, uh, fighting with bayonets as well as rifles mm-hmm. on the ground, very close uh, contact mm-hmm. with the enemy. Which is something we don't really see or think about anymore. No. I, I'm... I don't know much about military deployment today, but I'm guessing that a lot of rockets are just fired over (laughs) places and a lot of uh, people shooting, but you're from fairly long distances. There can still be close contact, but it's definitely, understandably, warfare has become more technologically driven over Mm -hmm. the last few decades. As opposed to the hand-to-hand. As opposed to the hand-to-hand. trench combat. All right. And now I'm guessing... And as somebody who's read a fair amount of military history and the way that I've seen it often presented is it's a lot of casualties and, oh, here's some stuff happening on the home front. But I think where your interests have come from is what does that experience of war, how do do the 
troops or the veterans that come home, Mm -hmm. how do they experience that war and what are the uh, effects on them mentally, let alone physically, uh, on the field, but then when they return home? What does that look like? Well, it was definitely something that was pivotally important to me in doing this, is Mm -hmm. taking a look at what actually happens when people come home afterwards in terms of what kind of care and compensation they can expect, as well as maybe their more popular experience of of coming home. Mm -hmm. And with Korea, it was actually very interesting because they came back, the war itself wasn't very well known. The public didn't engage with it that thoroughly in comparison to World War One and World War Two. Really? No. Why not? Well, first of all, it's five years after World War Two, so people are a little bit war weary yes. at this point. Okay. And also, uh, many people didn't e- even know where Korea was, mm-hmm. and it was very difficult for them to understand some of the political objectives behind the war. Okay. This is a limited war. It's not necessarily about beating out the Nazis, for instance. It's about attaining a political objective. Hmm. And for most people, that doesn't connect as easily. And uh, is there anything in in there, perhaps because the war was also in the Far East and not in Europe? Absolutely. That's also part of it, is that it just didn't strike the same popular tone Mm -hmm. as did a war in Europe. It's not an existential war either, so we're not fighting for our existence. It's not. It's a. It's a war of choice, uh, to put in quotation marks. Okay. So for people, it was. It was more difficult to be able to connect with the the reasons behind the war. Okay. So why uh, now with the Commonwealth uh, soldiers who went, were they conscripted or did they choose to go? Well, it varies. So okay. in the UK, there were some conscripts that went because this is the era of national service. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the Canadians, the Australians and the New Zealanders, they were volunteer forces. Okay. And now, but well, getting back to the earlier point then, um, so what happens when the troops come home or came home rather right. to Canada? Well, I think for a lot of them, it was a very negative experience, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. uh, Many stories that I would hear from British veterans, as well as Canadians, New Zealanders, as well as Australians, who would mention going to their local Legion branch, for instance, and being told by the members that they were not veterans. What? Exactly. Being told that they were very confusing. Being told that they weren't veterans because their experience was very different than the World War II veteran. I'm not sure what would qualify. I know it it strikes me as confusing as well initially when I heard it. But what qualifies or what were those justifications perhaps? What qualifies a a veteran from a non-veteran if this was the the way it was being presented? This is something that I found very interesting both in my discussions with students as well as veterans themselves as well as serving military people now. Mm -hmm. What constitutes a veteran? Right. How do you define a veteran? When you start thinking about a veteran, what is it that comes to mind? Uh, For me, uh, deployment in a situation of warfare. Right. Or conflict. Or conflict peacekeeping. Right. Okay. But for a lot of people, it's the the very much the World War II veteran that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The veteran that doesn't necessarily have a choice about deploying. Uh, Whereas for others who volunteer, it's not necessarily, uh, they don't equate being a veteran with their service. 
So they're even amongst veterans themselves. There is there is a distinction sometimes. And does this still exist? I think it still exists to a certain extent, perhaps not as badly as it did when Korea happened. Because when Korea happens, these men often find themselves completely blocked out of local legion and organizations that they were trying to get into and become members of. Mm-hmm. There was another man who went to get a home loan in the early 1960s. And he goes to the home loan officer and describes his background as a Korean War veteran. And the man threw 50 cents at him and said, that's all you deserve. (laughs) Exactly. That was my reaction when I read the story initially. Wow. That's terrible. It (laughs) is. Sorry to hear that. And for for a lot of them, they were entitled to exactly the same privileges as their World War II predecessors. Mm -hmm. But the problem was the war was not understood in the same way. Politicians referred to it frequently as a police action, Mm -hmm. not as a war. Mm -hmm. So when they came home, people did not understand it as a war and did not see them as veterans. So if, uh, if, in the experience of the one gentleman who had 50 cents thrown at him and say, that's all you deserve. Right. Did uh, Korean War veterans also encounter difficulties when dealing with the federal government, for example, and in terms of accessing care? Right. Well, in terms of the federal government, that's a or completely pensions. different system. They're entitled to exactly the same as their World War II counterparts. So technically, they should be able to get exactly the same level of care. Mm-hmm. But at the time, both for World War II veterans and for Korean War veterans, accessing care was difficult enough to begin with. Right. Uh, so, uh, what did that look like compared to now? Well, the system at that time uh, bears some similarities to today mm-hmm. in the sense that it's a system that ranges from, say, 5% disablement up to 100 mm-hmm. and your disability is assessed and then you are paid uh, a pension according to the assessment that is rendered. Mm -hmm. But the problem with mental health issues is that it's very difficult to trace the mental health problem directly to an incident in warfare, to say that this is what led to me being this way now. Because it... I could imagine it doesn't necessarily have to be one particular right, exactly. incident. I, and also, I would assume several years of watching people die or in warfare might have some impact over time, right. too. It can be a buildup. Mm-hmm. And one of the major problems at the time was that if you had a family history of mental health problems or a pre-existing history of mental health issues, that really counted against you mm-hmm. and made it very difficult to be able to prove that your war service Uh, resulted in the way you are today. So with the idea that soldiers faced rejection from local veterans groups uh, upon their return home uh, from Korea, what impact did this rejection have on Korean War veterans? Well, it's hard to quantify, but in terms of anecdotal evidence, I think it had a very negative impact on them as a, as a group, mm-hmm. as well as individuals. I think they felt like they had to deal with their uh, problems very privately. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much support publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of public commemoration, there was really no outlet for them to grieve uh, publicly. So, for instance, memorials in Commonwealth countries to Korea, so specifically a separate monument to Korea, they don't start appearing until the 1990s. Really? And the last uh, Korean War memorial that was built was in the UK in 2014. So it's been an incredibly long time coming. Okay. And you can also see this reflected in even uh, the official histories. So the official histories of the Second World War were written immediately after the war. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The official histories of the Korean War for many of the Commonwealth countries were not written until the 1980s. Interesting. So there's a big lag time. Yeah. And I think that that is really unfortunate because for many of these veterans, they just don't have the kind of public outlet to grieve and to express themselves that other veterans of more popular conflicts did. So, for instance, World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, I, getting back to uh, the idea of support, what kinds of support then were uh, veterans able to access or engage in uh, when they returned. Right. So you mean the official systems in Ofi- place of so federal it, government, for instance. But also unofficial. Right. Well, officially, uh, the treatment that's on offer if you are diagnosed uh, with a psychological uh, condition at that time would be you could go for treatment at a recognized government institution. Mm. And if that treatment subsequently fails, that's when they would kick in for, for money. But before that, you would have to go through treatment. And treatment at the time was reflective of psychology as a discipline at the time. So a lot of talk therapy, uh, trying to use that as a means of, of catharsis to get the, the trauma out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not incredibly advanced at this juncture. Psychiatry and psychology as disciplines are just starting to really get into a groove. This is the time when you finally have the introduction of antidepressants and other drugs, mm-hmm. but it's really just the beginning of a revolution in those disciplines. So for mm-hmm. these many of these men, there really isn't much that you can get in terms of treatment. Mm-hmm. In the UK, uh, there were some vocational schemes, so places where you could go and do various jobs they would train you for as a means of therapy, but they were very specialized programs. And there are very few spots on those programs. Okay. So most of them would have dealt with this informally within their own families, privately, most likely. Okay. And now when you say deal with this, what is it that they're dealing with? You're talking about invisible scars, mental trauma. I'm assuming there's a fairly large spectrum in there. What kinds of mental trauma are we discussing? Well, really, it can include everything and anything you can think of. So at the time, they would have called it psychoneurosis. Mm -hmm. But that's really a catch-all term for anxiety conditions. Okay. So for most of them, it would have been diagnosis with something like that. Anxiety conditions, depression. Uh, For many of them, they ended up dealing with uh, alcohol and other substance abuse problems. Mm -hmm. Although it's interesting that in doing the research for this, I didn't find much evidence of substance abuse problems in theater. So there wasn't much evidence of uh, abuse of alcohol or uh, opiates or other drugs while in theater. But that certainly from anecdotal evidence does become a problem when people return home. Mm -hmm. And now getting to the more uh, contemporary era, does your your research for this book or the book itself, what implications uh, does this research have for understanding not only deployment, but also the return of soldiers and veterans today right? in various theaters of war around the world? Well, I think, first of all, it highlights just how important the treatment process and the provisions at home are. Mm-hmm. They're just as important as what happens in theater. Mm-hmm. So we can become incredibly good and advanced in terms of military medicine in theater. But what happens at home and the social support networks in place for people when they return mm-hmm. are just as pivotal to helping them recover over the long term. 
And the other thing I think that people often don't really think about in terms of its impact on veterans is the popularity or unpopularity, lack of popularity of a conflict and how it affects people okay. and how they process the experience, which is especially relevant now because we're dealing with conflicts that are politically contentious frequently. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, Afghanistan or uh, troops who've deployed to Iraq. Mm -hmm. Those are conflicts that are not necessarily everyone's on board with those. So it makes it difficult for veterans who come home how they process their own experiences, whether or not they can reconcile themselves to the loss that they've experienced, knowing that the public perhaps doesn't support what they were sent for. Hmm. And now I wonder if there are also p practical applications that could be drawn from your book in terms of uh, service and care right. available for contemporary veterans. Right. What do you think? Well, I think that there needs to be social support systems in place, especially for people who are transitioning out of the military. Mm -hmm. And this is something that comes up consistently again and again uh, with veterans affairs and the difficulty that people have transitioning to civilian life. Mm -hmm. And I think what my research really does is just underline how important it is to set up those social support systems both inside D&D, Department of National Defense, as well as outside when people transition. Because you have to imagine within the military, they have an entire community that's built in. Mm -hmm. Whereas when they get out of the military, that community for them disappears. And suddenly they have to form new relationships and connections. So I think it's important for social systems and networks and charities to try to form as cohesive a net of social support as they can mm -hmm. because veterans will find it challenging when they get out. Well, thank you very, very much for this wonderful and very informative discussion. One last question. Sure. This is uh, career-making uh, material that you're working with but, uh, but that has uh, resonance uh, across the country, if right. not the, the Commonwealth, if you will. Mm -hmm. Where do you go from here in terms of your research? Well, right now uh, I'm expanding the research that I've done in past. So most of my work before was on operational stress injuries in specific, so things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And now it's more widely about psychological resilience in general and trying to demonstrate just how long-lasting this research has been and provide people with some of the lessons of past decades to make our research today a bit more effective. Okay. Oh, and uh, one more thing. Recently, you did uh, uh, you had a book launch for the uh, paperback version of your Invisible Scars, Mental Trauma, and the Korean War at Novel Idea. Yes, How did I that did. go? It went really well. It was a very interesting evening. Lots of people had intriguing questions. I never know exactly what people are going to ask. I'm mm -hmm. always surprised by someone's experience in the room. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I'll have Korean War veterans there, and it's a pleasure to be able to actually talk to them in person. And for maybe some of our graduate student listeners <laughs> and uh, or uh, current or soon-to-be postdocs, mm. how did the uh, book publishing process go for you? It went relatively smoothly, I will say that. Mm -hmm. However, what I would say to any graduate student who's looking at publication in general is uh, be patient with the process. I know that it's frustrating just how long sometimes some of these things take from the beginning to actually getting it out there on the shelves. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that it has been worth it to be able to know that my work is finally out there in the world for people to, to read. And congratulations. I look Thank forward you. to picking up your book too. Great.
So thank you very much. This has been Megan Fitzpatrick, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow in War Studies at the Royal Military College, visiting us today here at CFRC, talking about her research and her book, Invisible Scars, Mental Trauma in the Korean War with UBC Press. Thank you again. We appreciate your time. Thank you.